Good evening. Good to see each one of you this evening. So glad you're here. If you're joining us online, we're so glad you're with us. Tonight as we gather to worship, we're going to, in a little bit, be partaking of communion. Those of you online, if you want to grab some elements there at home and get them prepared. But we're going to begin by standing this evening and joyfully praising and worshiping our wonderful Savior. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of eternal gladness, fill us with the Oh, 
because of you that we can stand, that we can live, that we can have hope. And so we joyfully worship you. We bless you from the depths of our soul, remembering all that you've done with it for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may Good. Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the Bible. Come September, we will have finished our seventh year of this journey. It's been a long one. My goal of finishing the whole Bible in seven years went out the window a long time ago. But that's okay. Blessed are the flexible. They won't be broken, right? We're going to continue on in our say. We're going to cover Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7 tonight. They're shorter chapters. Have you ever had to address an issue with somebody corrective? for the purpose of reconciliation, and didn't know how it was going to go. There's kind of like this tension, right? So, so it's like, I, it's one of those things where you go, we need to have a talk. And the other person goes, uh-oh. And it's the kind of talk that you don't want to have with somebody because in it, it's corrective, and you don't know how they're going to receive it. You don't know if they're going to, Get mad if they're going to, and, and it, it, it's the kind of talk that really kind of breaks your heart over it. It's like, ah, just just hurts you. Well, that's kind of what Paul's doing here in this uh, letter to the church of Corinth. He's addressing some issues that were sent to him, questions, but also some issues of sin and correction. They'd gotten to a place in this church here in Corinth that, there were some people that were raised up and turning the whole church against Paul. Now, mind you, Paul founded the church. He went and he presented the gospel, and, and people were saved, and the church was established. But they had fallen into some really bad behaviors and bad habits as a result of being Corinthianized. If you remember, they become very secular in their, their presentation. And so the world had really just started infecting their theology, and they became very compromised. And so Paul is, you know, their spiritual father needs to write them a letter of correction. And if you have, if you're a parent of teenagers, this is the kind of thing that you've got to deal with. Where it's like, I've got to correct them and I don't know how it's going to go. Well, we're kind of coming to an end of that correction piece. Mind you, he had sent Titus earlier. We had read about him going, sending Titus to go and check on him and these things. And we're coming to an end and, and really kind of taking a look at what, what reconciliation looks like. In, in affecting that reconciliation and that change. Paul's goal was to reconcile the church of Corinth to himself, to re reestablish that relationship with them. And he really is opening his heart and asking them to open up their heart to him. Conflict in a relationship is difficult because what happens in conflict is you put up your guard, right? You put up your guard and you're like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm guarded against you. And so in this, we're going to read how Paul encourages them to, to open up their hearts as he has been open to them for that. And in that, we're going to hear Paul's heart where he says, you know, what you've heard about me is not true. And, and trying to set the record straight about their perception of Paul. But again, it's a difficult situation and it's going to cost him. When we take a look at Jesus, he is the perfect model of the reconciler, isn't he? He has reconciled mankind to himself. 
but it cost him. And it was great suffering, and it cost him. But it was great passion and desire to be able to reconcile mankind, the creation, to himself. And so within this, we're going to see this model that we can follow. Paul had the model of reconciliation. Because Paul had been reconciled to Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. On Sunday mornings, we'll get to that here in a couple weeks. So how do you reconcile yourself to the other person? Well, you go after him with an open heart. And you really seek that from that other person within that. So we're in a continuing conversation that he's been in for a couple of chapters here. In trying to work through this this ministry of reconciliation. Let's take a look at the first ten verses of chapter 6. He says this, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance and inflictions and in hardships and in distress and in beatings and imprisonments, in tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger, in purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and genuine love, in the word of truth and in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and the left, the glory and the dishonor, by the evil report and good report, regard as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, and as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul starts out with this reconciliation, and what he's doing is, is he says, look it, I've poured my heart out to you. I'm commended myself to you. In fact, I've committed myself to you. One of the things that you can tell um, in a person is, is how much they are devoted to you by their actions, by what they say, and what they do. The people that were against Paul were saying, you know, Paul doesn't really care about you. He's absent. He's just not really there. But he says, no, he says, look, we're working together, verse 1, and we're working together. We have the common goal, and it's a common ministry together, and it's a ministry of reconciliation. And one of the things that he was looking was, was to create unity, not distance. I can tell you this, distance does not make the heart grow fonder, as they say. It actually makes the relationships weaker. I've, I've done marriage counseling, and they go, well, you know, we're moving out. We're separating. Okay, why and for how long? Well, I don't know, until things get better. Okay. I can tell you this, it won't. There is a reason to separate for a specific time, and for a short time, and, and you know whether it's a case of abuse or, or, or just trying to work things out, but there needs to be some specific guidelines within that. The separation from Paul from the Church of Corinth had created a gap. Whenever you create a gap in a relationship, it opens the door for Satan to create a foothold. Whenever there is a gap in any relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, a friendship relationship, or your relationship between you and God, Satan finds the way to get in between. 
And within this, Paul is trying to reconcile them first on the basis of fellow workers of God. Within this. That we're working together. In fact, he mentions it in 520. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. One of the things that, that, that Paul was trying to get them to understand is not only are you, are you separated from me, but you're separated from God. Because if you reject the messenger, you're rejecting the message. And for the church of Corinth, there was no separation. They, they were in this place was, well, we're rejecting the messenger, but we're also rejecting the message that the messenger was bringing. Paul was bringing the ministry and the message of reconciliation. But they say, Paul, we don't like you. And therefore, anything that you say, we really don't like. Well, when you remove the teacher, then you're left to your own demise. And so what ends up happening is you believe the lies that Satan serves up. And so unity is the best thing that you can do. And so instead of distancing themselves, Paul was seeking to unify. I can tell you this, if you're at odds with somebody in the ministry of reconciliation, seek to unify. Seek to be united with that person. Have those conversations. Sometimes they will be hard conversations, but have them nevertheless. You need those conversations with them. As we're going to read a little bit later, Paul is writing this letter with tears in his eyes, sorrow. Because he was scared that in the harshness of his letter, they would run away forever. And there's always that tension. Am I too harsh? What else was unifying them? It was the ministry of grace. If you look at verse 1, also it says, We also urge you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. What does he mean, this grace of God of vain? Well, we, we've all received salvation by the grace of God. It's for by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? That's what Scripture tells us. Now, if you receive the grace of God in, in, unto salvation, and the grace of God is a gift that unifies, then why would you seek to have disunity? It would be in vain. Because salvation is the reconciliation of man to God, and it's through this grace. And, and Paul is connected with this gift of grace, grace and salvation. Paul gave them salvation as the father of their faith. And he says, look it, you received salvation through the ministry that I brought to you. Was it empty? Was it in vain? You think so many times, and again, we think about parents and teens. Do teens always realize the sacrifices that parents make on their behalf to provide the provision, gratitude? Not usually, right? And the minute that, you, that as a, a parent you tick them off and you tell them no, right? Do they forget all the blessings that you've already provided for them? For sure they do. It'd be the same thing as a parent to a child. Are you forgetting all, have you received all my love for you in vain? That's kind of what Paul is saying here within this. And then we think about this grace. If we really delve into the grace of God, it should fill our hearts and seek unity and love. But if we're not filled with the grace of God, if the grace of God is not filling in our heart, then that grace has stopped its effect of change. You want a really cool exercise? Take some time, 30 minutes, an hour, 
Go someplace quiet. And just meditate on the grace of God. And what God has graced you with. Clear your mind of everything. And start just meditating. How has God graced my life? What has the grace of God given me? What, are, what, is, what is the depth of the grace that I've received from God? And let the grace of God fill your heart. Because I can tell you this, to the depth that you experience the grace of God will be the depth by which you give grace to others. Do you hear that? To the depth that you experience and reflect on the grace of God will be the depth by which you show grace towards one another. And Paul says, we've all received the grace of God. And that we are saved by grace. But the danger that Paul warns them in is that they make that grace ineffective. What's another way? Another way, which was a challenge for the church of Corinth, is this. You want to know how to make grace ineffective? Keep on sinning. You're saved by grace. Your sins have been removed by the grace of God. You've been given this grace gift of eternal life. But to make grace ineffective would say, thank you God for forgiving me of my sins, but I'm going to go keep on sinning. I'm going to go live like hell. Even though you've already saved me, I'm going to go live like hell because I really don't count that grace gift that effective. And so the church of Corinth, he's saying, look, it, you're making grace ineffective because you don't value it. You keep on sinning. And you're trusting that, that this salvation is, is just going to be theirs. And so that grace is powerless in your life. It makes the person ingracious. Think about that. Ingracious. When you keep on blatantly sinning, you're making grace ineffective and you are being ingracious towards God. I'm not saying thank you. Paul goes on in this and he quotes Isaiah in the redemptive work. He quotes out of Isaiah 49.8 that says this, Thus says the Lord, In a favorable time I have answered you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of people to restore the land, to make them inherit uh, desolate heritages. Did God have to show grace towards the nation of Israel? Did he really need to do anything for them? Question, does God need to do anything? Do you realize that? God is not required to save you. God is not required to save me. God is not required to forgive me. It's for by grace that we've received this. Paul quotes verbatim Isaiah 49, 8, and he's wanting them to understand that there is grace and there is help on this day of salvation. God came for you on a specific day. Do you realize that God knows the day that you were going to be saved? God knows the day you were going to be saved. He knows you by name. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. That's a gracious act of God before you ever even existed. It's this grace gift that has your name written on it, waiting for you to receive it, but it's already been purchased for you. And God is there to help. He chose Israel before Israel was even Israel. He chose the land. He chose all of this. 
And we, and we, when we think about this grace gift, who are we to throw that gift back up in God's face? The, the chance of us just flirting with this is ridiculous, but we do it all the time. The other blessing that we see in the text, both in, the, in, in this text and in, in the Scripture, is this. God is so gracious, He is always ready to receive you when you come to Him. Do you realize that? It doesn't matter when you think it's going to happen. God already knows when it's going to happen, but He's ready to receive you. He's looking for you to come. We think about what God does and it says, at the acceptable time, I listen. That's the day of grace. At the acceptable time. At the appointed time, he says out of Isaiah, I listen. God knows. And on that day of salvation, I help. This day of deliverance, this day of freedom. And he says, and now is the day of salvation. You know, I've talked with so many people and you ask them, I'll ask them, i say, you know, if you were to die today, where would you go? What would happen to you if you died today? Would you be with the Lord? Would you not be with the Lord? Are you ready to meet the Lord? What would happen? Many of them don't have that answer. And you don't know the day that the Lord's going to take you home. I got called out on a, on a cardiac arrest this morning for a lady who had been, she had lung cancer, had been sick for a couple of years. Husband's devastated. They knew that she was sick, not on hospice yet. He came out in the morning and found her had passed. And he was devastated. Why? Because it, he knew that she was sick unto death, but didn't know it was that day, today. And he was grieving. But he knows the Lord, and he draws comfort in knowing the fact that he's going to go see her, and that was a blessing in being able to pray with him today. But we think about this, it is God's determination to reconcile us to himself, as he did with the nation of Israel, even taking them through the wilderness experience. You think about the wilderness, that's God's grace. And it's this grace gift that's there. And on the day of Passover was the day of deliverance for Israel. God knew the day of Passover that he would take Israel out of Egypt. Take them through the wilderness. Give them this land. He knew the day that Jesus would die on the cross, which would be Passover. And to be able to provide that day. He knows the day he'll take us home. He'll know the day that he brings all of these worlds to an end. And the blessing is God thinks about us like that and says, I have prepared for you a heaven, a home, a body, an eternal kingdom. Isaiah was the spokesperson for God's calling for the nation of Israel to repent. Paul, in writing this letter, calls up this passage and says, in the same way I'm the spokesperson for you, Corinth, repent. Turn around. Turn away from these things. When you, when you call out the kids and the teenagers that are continuously rebelling, don't you go to them and you say, come on, please, let's get it right. Stop doing what you're doing and, and, and come back into this relationship. Repent from your sin so that you can receive that deliverance. That's God's way. Repent and receive. And so Paul saw himself as this mouthpiece on behalf of God for the church to be reconciled. Then Paul moves on and he says, look at, you've been told I don't care. Well, here's how much I care. 
And he lays out a litany of things to prove that he cares. So many times we show love and mercy and grace to people, but they just miss it. And so is it appropriate to be able to display those actions of love and grace? Yes, it is. Because so, so many times we get lost in our sin that we don't see it. So Paul goes on and he says this, as this persistent servant of God, he says this, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. In other words, I've done everything and not given cause for you to doubt my ministry for you. I've given no cause to be discredited in your eyes. For example, all of my motives were, were pure. They were all right. They, I didn't do it for money. I did it for your reconciliation. But the cynic will want to... Do you, do you realize that cynics want to discredit you? Devalue you? And so the cynic wants to discredit the ministry and discredit Paul and anything he could. So Paul says, look it, I have... I've not done anything in the ministry to be discredited, but in everything commended ourselves as servants of God inasmuch as endurance. And he goes down this list. The other thing that I see in this is important is this. Paul was less concerned about his reputation, more concerned about the reputation of the ministry. You think about it. What would happen if Paul's ministry was discredited? Not just the minister, but the ministry. Can you think of the ripple effect it would have in all the other churches? Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, Athens, all of the different places. If Paul's ministry was discredited, in our modern day, has there been many ministries discredited? Sure. I know people that won't set foot in a church because the ministry was discredited by the minister. And so, and, and that's a sad thing. So Paul was very concerned about the reputation of his ministry. In Philippians 1, 15-18, he wrote to the church of Philippi, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also of goodwill. Now the latter do it out of love, the ones preaching out of goodwill, knowing that I am appointed at the defense of the gospel. The former, the ones preaching out of envy and strife, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Now, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. His point was that Christ would be preached and that the ministry wouldn't be discredited because the main thing is that Jesus Christ is preached. You should never, ever put a person up on a pedestal because what happens when you put them up on a pedestal? They're falling. They're going to fall. But Jesus Christ is the one to be worshipped. So Paul gives this accreditation. And Paul knew that his accreditation only came from God. He was not one that was looking to be pleasing people, which I appreciate. 1 Corinthians 4, 2-5 says this, In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm only by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Do you get that? The one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, 
But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden and in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him before God. Paul basically says, it doesn't matter what you think about me. What matters is what God thinks about me. He's the one that I answer to. And in the end, your opinion, my opinion, even my opinion itself, it doesn't matter because it's all going to be before God. And let God sort it out. Now, what would it be like if, if every person walked around and said, the only opinion that matters is the one from God? It doesn't matter how many likes you got or how many tweeters tweet your following tweet thing or Snapchat your thing or whatever your deal is. They'll come up with another one. What would it be like, especially if our young people said, the only opinion that matters is God's? Well, how are they going to learn that the opinion that matters is God's unless those that are in our generation teach them that. What matters is what God says about you, not what other people say about you. But Paul, again, gave this litany. He says, look it, I've been serving and I've been serving effectively. Not preaching to please people, but to be an effective servant. I'm not looking to evoke criticism, because criticism is going to come. But I've suffered. And I got to thinking about this list. He gives a pretty long list here. And he says in this, In everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much affliction, in afflictions, in endurance, in afflictions and hardships, um, and distress. In other words, I've been totally committed to serving you in emotional suffering. Know this, if you're going to be a Christ follower and you're going to serve... You will suffer emotionally. People are not going to like you. You will have afflictions. You will have hardships. You will have distress. There is emotional suffering that comes with being a servant of God. He goes on and then in beatings and imprisonments and riots and hard work and sleepless nights. That's physical suffering. Being a Christ follower and serving God is going to cost you physically. Sleepless nights where you're just awake praying. And, and, and people come to mind, or you're staying up with somebody just to pray for them, or to love on them, or to encourage them. For Paul, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work. Ministry is hard work. Serving God is hard work. And he did that both for Corinth. And, and he's enduring. But then the third group is enduring with purity and knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, with genuine love, word of truth, power, and weapons of righteousness. This third category is enduring with spiritual power. Well, how do I endure the physical suffering and the emotional suffering? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. With the power of the Holy Spirit. I endure with the Holy Spirit. Who gives you the power of purity and knowledge and patience and all of these elements. So even in self-discipline, it's tough. And Paul says, I did all of these things. To commend myself to you. If you really think I'm, I'm that bad, question, did Paul really need to go to Corinth and get beaten up? No. Would it be hard to go and hang out with people and talk with people and encourage people that really don't want to talk to you? What moves somebody to try to reconcile with a broken relationship? The love for the other person. The love for the other person moves you to be reconciled to that person. Because I can tell you this, if you didn't love that other person, you'd say, Pax and I'm out of here. I don't want to deal with you. 
right? But the, the fact that you're persevering says, I love you. And I want to be in this relationship with you. Some people would see, you know, these afflictions as a mark against themselves, like you deserve it. Paul doesn't see it that way. Paul loves this church so much that he sees the affliction and the suffering he's going through, and he says it is a mark of spiritual warfare. Do you know that Satan is against unity? He is trying to break up marriages, trying to break up relationships. And the more you pursue unity in that relationship, there's going to be more affliction. Why? Because the gap was created, warfare began, and now you're trying to close that gap. And Satan does not want to give up ground, does he? No, he wants to drive more wedges in. And so Paul says, look it, this is warfare that's in this. And within this, he says, look at this is this is what needs to happen. Now, then he goes in and gives seven statements of contrast that really proves to the church of Corinth, you cannot live a compromising life. He, he talks about in verse seven in the word of truth, the weapons of righteousness, that's the warfare. But then he talks about in verses eight through ten, these seven and statements of antithesis or, or contrast. And he says, you've you got to be one or the other. And, and he uses these analogies. You're either going to be in the camp of glory or the camp of dishonor. You're either going to have a good rep, an evil reputation or a good reputation. You're either going to be with the deceivers or with the true. You're either going to be um, in the unknown or, or the oblivious or the well-known. Dying or the living. Being punished, not put to death, sorrowful, yet rejoicing. These contrasts that are there. Why? Because you have to choose. Here's a question for you tonight. Are you in any kind of a broken relationship that needs to be restored and reconciled? If you are, are you the reconciler like Paul? Or... Are you the one that's choosing to create the gap like the church of Corinth? Because you're only going to be in one of the two. You're either seeking to be the reconciler and bringing the relationship together, or you're the one that is saying, nope, I don't want to be reconciled. My way or the highway. You know, I've got this anger, this bitterness, this frustration, this unforgiveness against you, and I am choosing not to forgive you. And I want to keep this gap. I can tell you this. The latter is a very dangerous place to be in. If you are the reconciler, like Paul, don't give up. Don't quit. Let the love of God move you. The Holy Spirit lead you. And the grace of God be the motivation to move you towards that person. Even though they seem resistant. Keep proving yourself to God. Not to them, to God. Because why did Paul endure all of these things? To make the church of Corinth happy? Nope. Because he was called to it by God. Whatever realm you're in. Paul's bottom line is this. You're either a true minister of the gospel of reconciliation or you're a fake. It's pretty harsh. He says, you're either truly a reconciler in the name of Christ, or you're a phony. 
for the church of Corinth, he's calling them out. Paul was motivated by the gospel of reconciliation because he understood it personally. Going back to your assignment, when you think about this idea of grace, by how much God has graced you, who are you to hold a grudge against any person? Paul is that true servant. And in his mind, as he ends this section, he says, "And having nothing yet possessing all things. The true servant of God is richer than the richest person in the world. Because the true servant of God understands the full depth of God's grace and understands they've been reconciled to God. What a blessing that is. And we think about that grace gift. It's, it's a priceless gift that God's given us. Paul goes on and gives an illustration of what a committed Christian really looks like. So now he's focused on the ministry of reconciliation. Then, okay, we're going to get reconciled. We're going to have that reconciliation. Then what is this relationship is going to look like? Within this, verses 11 to, uh, 6, 11, all the way to 7, 3. It says, Our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. In other words, your own affections are holding you back. But now, in a like exchange, I speak to you as children. Open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship with light and darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be, they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from midst and separate, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, the ones we just read, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, and make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said, before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Three different times Paul says in this section, our hearts are open to you. You're in our hearts. I care about you. And as he's working through this, one of the things that we can see is the mark of a true Christian is an open heart. Paul says, I have an open heart for you. Will you open your heart for me? Well, in reconciliation, that has to be the first question that's answered. Do you have an open heart towards the one that, needs to be, that you need to be reconciled to? Do you have an open heart? And does the other person have an open heart towards you? Because I can tell you this, unless there's an open heart on both sides, there is no reconciliation. Unless both hearts are completely open, there will be no reconciliation. Now, we know by model, God always has an open heart for the lost, doesn't he? Is God's heart open towards the lost? Always? Regardless of any condition that they might be in, regardless of what kind of sinner they are, is God's heart always open to them? Yeah, absolutely. Is man's heart always open to God? 
No. We pray, God, open the eyes of my understanding that I might see you. God, open my heart that I might receive you. God has an open heart towards us. We have to declare our openness to Him within that. It's a reciprocal relationship with God. Yes, God wrote your name before the foundation of the world. God knows that day or that time, but He is waiting for that time. But I can tell you this, you don't know that time. That's why today might be the day of your salvation. When the light goes on and you say, yes, I'm going to open my heart to restore that right relationship with the one who saves me. There were some in Corinth that had sought to turn Paul, the, the people away from Paul and they closed their hearts and Paul speaks openly and says, look it. We need to, to have this open heart, this open communication. The key to Christian unity is open communication. Heart to heart. But how can you have a heart to heart situation if one heart is closed? You can't, can you? You can't have an open heart. Heart to heart. If one heart is closed off. You can't have true Christian fellowship unless it's heart to heart. It's this fair exchange of ideas. Paul goes on in this and he says, look it. Not only this, that we've spoken freely, open wide, you're not rest- we're not restrained to you, but you're restraining your affections now. Exchange- now, let me speak to you as a father. Verse 13, it's not derogatory in any way. He says, now in a like exchange, I speak to you as children. Why? Because you're my spiritual children. As a father would speak to a child. You think about those times, again, if you've had teenagers that have just been knuckleheads... And I know there's a few. When you go to them and you're speaking heart to heart, yet that teenager is sitting there across the table just like this, right? Are you really having good communication? No. But as a loving parent, you're saying, please listen to me. Open your heart because I care about you. So he turns to this family structure and, and, and appeals to that. And, and as a father would speak to the child, and then he gives them warning. Here's what's stopping our relationship, which I think is huge. As a father, he's bringing to light, here are the things that are hindering the openness between us. So this is what you need to get rid of that's in between us. So if we understand that Paul is seeking to reconcile the church to him, as God is to us, then what does God do? God reveals our sin so that we can see our sin, confess our sin, repent and turn away from that sin so that we can be reconciled to God. Paul's not creating anything new. This is what God does. And so he goes to them and he says, Don't be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. In other words, you look at verse 14, what is the key relationship breakdown? They're trusting in unbelievers more than they're trusting in their spiritual father, Paul. They're listening to the false teachers of the community rather than they're listening to their spiritual parent. Have you ever had adolescents do that? They listen to the world more than they listen to the loving parents. And what happens to the the parent-child relationship? Breaks apart. Same thing is true for us as Christians. 
If we start listening to the world and gaining this world idea more than we're listening to God, what's going to happen to our relationship with God? It's going to break apart. So what does Paul say for the first step of reconciliation? Understand who you're listening to and and get rid of these people. Separate yourselves from them. Anything that's unclean, these binding relationships, don't be bound together or literally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? Number one, because it doesn't make sense. What does righteousness and lawlessness have together? Light darkness. And he uses this, this idea of yoking. Now, understand very clearly, when he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, this is not a license for divorce between a believer and unbeliever. The believer can't go to the unbelieving spouse and say, hey, look it, you know what Pastor Kerry said, and they read it right here, and you're an unbeliever, so I want my divorce papers right now, because I can't be yoked to unbelievers. Is that what he's saying? No, in fact, he already addressed it in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. So it's not your get out of, get out of the marriage free card that you get to use. But what is he saying is don't join yourself with, as, with, with an unbeliever pre-marriage. I've had so many young people. Drives me nuts. You want, to, you want to make, especially a youth guy like me, crazy, is when these two people come together and they're dating. Oh, you're dating so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know the Lord? No. You know the Lord. I know because I baptized you. What are you doing with this one who doesn't know the Lord? I love him. Come here, we need to talk. <laughs> we have a conversation. And here is the excuse. If I date them, then they're going to come to know the Lord. Show me in Scripture where missionary dating is acceptable. It isn't. Don't be unequally yoked. Many people were unbelievers and married, and then a person gets saved having already been married. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you're in that case, don't seek to get out. But don't be stupid as a believer and date an unbeliever. That's dumb. Why is it dumb? Because you don't have unity in the relationship. There is no spiritual unity. And you get married and you have kids. Can you imagine how many fights you're going to have? And I can tell you this, the believer will always lose to the unbeliever. And the children will be in conflict spiritually. So when it says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, yes, it talks about pre-marriage and the dating. It talks about spiritual relationships, emotional relationships, business relationships, and social relationships. The idea of harnessing yourself with somebody that has influence over your life. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Why? Because that influence of that unbeliever is going to have an overwhelming pull upon you, as did the false teachers and the idolatry that was going on. In our culture today, think about all the things that People are unequally yoked with. Christians. Christians that are dabbling in yoking themselves with secularism, humanism, politics, false spiritual leaders, social movements, 
social ideologies. Well, I'm believing in this social movement, yeah? Is it biblical? No, it's not biblical, but it makes everybody feel better. Then why are you allowing this social movement to have that strong of an influence on you? I dare to say in offending most, we do it with Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook. Think about the influence that the media, these social media things have upon you. And how it affects you. We do it with news. We think about how much news goes into our life. This secularized, humanistic view that rattles us and gets us angry and brings out all kinds of thoughts of disunity. Be very careful of what you yoke yourself to. Because it will have a strong influence upon you. The church of Corinth was secular to begin with. Then they got saved. But the social context that they lived in was very strong in their flesh and pulling them back into secularism. And now they had this conflict that was going on. Does it mean that they have to go create their own commune? No, that's not what Paul is saying. He addressed it in 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13. He says, but actually I wrote to you I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or idolater or rivaler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those that are within the church, but those who are outside the church, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, the disfellowshipping and the avoidance is going to be that, that you avoid those that are fake Christians because they'll have a negative influence with you. Then you also avoid, um, you, you have to avoid being yoked to the pagans, but not to the extent that you ostracize yourself from them. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-10 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean all the immoral people of the world, for the covetous, swindler, or idolater, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, they didn't call you to be out of, out of the world. You're going to be in there, but don't have to let these people have influence on you. Why? The Church of Corinth is a, is a classic case. They let themselves become yoked so much with the world, it was pulling them away from the grace of God and the unity of the church. And we see that today. We see that even within the church. Are churches fighting amongst churches today? Are they fighting over stupid theology? Absolutely. Yeah, the secular, the secular theology that has infected the church has created a lot of problems. So what is Paul really saying? He's saying that, that the Christian identity just needs to be distinctly different from the pagan identity. Your Christian identity should be distinctly different than pagan identity. They should be able to tell you're a Christian without you ever opening your mouth. They should know that. Paul goes on and he says, For example, what fellowship does Belial, or Belar, literally, which is a name for Satan, have to do with Christ? Would, is there anything that Jesus and Satan have in common? No. Lucifer is not Jesus' brother, regardless of what a major religious organization will tell you. There is no fellowship between the two. 
why do we try to join ourselves to them? What agreement does the temple of God have with the temple of idols? And then Paul says, you are the temple of God. And you say, well, what does that mean to the church of Corinth? Do you realize that there was a thousand temple prostitutes there in Corinth? There was temples everywhere. And what the church was happening, the Christians that were doing, because it was okay, at some point in time, if you wanted to go worship at the goddess Diana, you go visit a temple prostitute, and you go worship there. Well, the church had fallen back into that, where the Christian men were going to the social club of the temple prostitute of Diana, and they were having intimate relationships with the, in the temple of Diana, or doing sacrifice in that, but they're taking the temple of God with them into that temple. And Paul says, how does that work? You're taking the temple of God, you, into a place of idolatry? That'd be like a Christian going into a strip club. Shouldn't happen. But they were doing it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Wherever you go, you take God with you. Whatever you watch on TV, God is watching there with you. Whatever you watch on your computer or your phone, God is there watching it with you. Is there unity in that? Is there fellowship in that? No. Again, another place where Satan gets a foothold and a wedge. The Christian temple is the body, but it's also the collective group being called out. We have to choose to worship the living God, not dead idols. Paul says you choose. There is no agreement between these idols. Okay, God, so I'm going to come out. I'm going to be separate. Paul quotes a series of passages out of Exodus 6-7, Leviticus 26-11-12, Jeremiah 31-33, Ezekiel 11, uh, verse 20. Isaiah 52, 11, and, and so on. This series of pa passages. And, and this is a conglomeration that he brought all together when he says, Did God say, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from in the midst and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what's unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you'll be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord. What does he say? He says, come out, be separate. And here's the promises of God. God promises when you come out, God's presence will dwell with you and you will know it. When you come out, God promises to be in that relationship with you. I will be your God. You'll be my people. When you come out, you're obeying God as being called out and being separate, called the church. And when you come out, God says, you'll experience my fatherhood. God, if I leave this culture, what do I have? If I leave this society, I'm scared. If I leave this, what do I have? God says, you have me. And I'm enough. Have you ever thought about that? If I was to ask you the question, is God enough? What would your answer be? Is God enough? He's more than enough. We go looking to the world because what we're saying when we go looking to the world, God, you're not enough. When we go looking to feed this flesh, what we're saying is, God, you're not enough. 
You think about that in a marriage relationship. When you go and cheat on your spouse, what are you saying to your spouse? You're not enough. Is God enough? My hope and my answer is, is yes. So we need to come out from that mistress of the world and as, as Paul would say, make room in your hearts for the grace of God. And I guarantee if you make room in the heart for the grace of God, He will fill it. Overflowing. When you say, God, you're enough. You're all I need within that. And Paul says, then we have fellowship together. In verse 3, whether we live or die, we do it within unity. Now Paul finishes out this section here. Just speaking of his great confidence that he has in this church. Here's something that uniquely happens. As I began this talk, we looked at the fact and we asked the question, in reconciliation, have you ever approached somebody and was scared what the outcome might be? Here is the outcome. Verses 4 to 16. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing and your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I, note, caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. And though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to, note, the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading us to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this very godly sorrow that produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. But that you earnestly on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting, therefore, Titus proved to be true. His affections abound all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, and how you received him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice in everything. I have confidence in you. Paul's picking up here, because he had to go and defend himself, so he's going back to chapter 2, verse 13, and picking up this, this thought of, I'm sending you Titus to find out what's going on. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 2, 13, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave from them. And I went on to Macedonia. In other words, I sent Titus to you to give me a report. He had heard all this stuff about Corinth. He took this time, wrote his defense, 
And now he's coming back, and this is what I learned from Titus. As he's responding to the church of Corinth after Titus is coming back to him and giving him the report. And he says, I am confident that you've changed. Now, this conversation that Paul had had with them on correcting them in 1 Corinthians, in the first letter of Corinthians, had its effect. Titus goes. Now he's responding in 2 Corinthians. And he says, and the the corrections I gave you in the first letter, they changed you. And that was good. And all the worry and all the concern that he had that was bringing him grief was all subsided when he heard about the change. He had confidence in the potential change. You think about every time you have to, again, in this analogy of disciplining teens. Why do we discipline them? Because we hope that through discipline their character will change and develop and grow into a good relationship, don't we? We go back and we constantly do this. And even for adult children, don't you go and you have these conversations with them time and time and time again. Why? Because you're confident, you have this confidence that there's somewhere along the line there's going to be a change. And you don't quit. Why? Because you are confident. And when that change takes place, whenever that change takes place, then there is an exceeding joy that happens. Yes, finally. And the relationship is restored. Paul didn't want to have that conversation. He was grieving him to have that conversation again with this church. But he knew it was necessary. And he was straightforward and it was clear. And he was comforted by the response of the church. When he hears about this and returns from Macedonia, Paul was physically worn out and tired. Have you ever been in that place in the battle where you're just tired of the confrontation with that person you're trying to reconcile? And you're just hanging on. What are you hanging on to? That hope. That hope. That you're going to be reconciled. That it's going to change. That the relationship's going to get better. And he hears from Titus that it did. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, he says, We're afflicted in every way, but crushed, not perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Do not give up hope when you're trying to reconcile with somebody. Why? Because God's greater. God is the God of reconciliation. And the work of ministry is reconciliation. It is hard. It is physically and emotionally hard. And it can cause us to be weary in the flesh. I don't know how many times I've wanted to quit on people and go, you know what, I'm done. And God says, you're not done until I tell you you're done. I'm like, thanks God. Really? I want to be done now. No, you're not done yet. Get back in there. But I'm tired. Take five minutes now and get back in. Quit your whining. All right. For you, God. Yeah, but don't give up hope. And I've watched God do amazing things. I know a couple that recently got remarried after being divorced. And got remarried. And they got reconciled. And you go, well, how did that happen? Well, they were together for a long period of time. They had kids. And things went sideways. They got divorced. Two weeks ago, they got remarried. And I'm like, okay, God. You're the God of reconciliation. And it blows your mind. 
within us. How did he know that this spiritual crisis was corrected? Because Titus went to the church and experienced it. He was accepted and encouraged by the church, not rejected. He reported that the relationship wasn't as broken as, as uh, Paul thought. And he reported that the church was mourning over their sin. And Paul then finishes out with his confidence in, in this letter. Even though it pained him, and he wrote to them, he says, It hurt me to have to talk to you like this. As a loving father, the discipline was necessary. Why? Here's the key. Paul had to create a sorrow that would lead to repentance. Does God not do the same thing with us? When does true repentance take place? When we truly see our sin the way that God sees it, and we are mournful over it and sorrowful for it. And Paul says there is a sorrow that leads to repentance. Not a worldly sorrow. You think about Judas. Was Judas world, sorrow with a worldly sorrow? He, got, he was sorry he got caught, went out and hung himself. Peter, on the other hand, had a sorrow unto repentance and he mourned over his sin and was restored. Paul created a sorrow that led to repentance that brought about restoration. And he rejoiced. Why? Because Titus brought back this report of this right relationship. A sorrow that leads to repentance. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. But we think about this table. This table is a grace gift that God has given to us, isn't it? Jesus didn't have to die on the cross for your sins. He chose to. And only those that realize the depth of their sin benefit from the cross. Because the cross is the ministry of reconciliation. The cross is a grace gift that God has given to us. That while I was yet a sinner, Jesus died for me. Took my place. Grace. How deep is it? How great is it? Where would you be without it? In a moment, when the team comes up and leads us through a, a time of worship, meditation, be thinking about that concept of grace and that grace gift that you've been given and afforded. That this table is the table of reconciliation or reminds us that we've been reconciled unto God. What you want to do prior to taking the bread and the cup, though, is to consider your sin like Corinth did and repent from it. If there is sin in your life that, is, that has you separated from God, if you're unequally yoked and attached to the world, or a sin or a habit or whatever it is, confess it to God. Come out away from that. Ask God to forgive you of that sin. So that when you come to this table of grace... You can receive the bread that reminds us of the body of Jesus, the cup that reminds us of His blood. And you can celebrate unity with all of us and with the Father all at the same time. One faith, one hope, one God. You can come up when you're ready, take the bread, take the cup, hang on to it until everybody's been served, and at the end, we'll celebrate together. If you haven't been reconciled to God, then maybe today is your day of salvation. But if you're not saved, then don't take the elements.
They'll have no meaning for you. Be right with God. Honor Him. This is our time of worship. Let's do that even now. God, we thank You for this, this time. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Reveal any hidden sin in us. That we might confess it and repent from these things. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we consider this bread what we see is our Savior hanging on the cross a body that had been beaten mocked tortured and persecuted a crown of thorns upon your head and the blood flowing from your wrists and your feet. Mockers standing all around. And thieves on your right and left. A sinner's death. Yet you had committed no sin. You bore upon yourself a shame so unimaginable, declared guilty by humanity. And then, Lord Jesus, upon that cross, the Father in heaven looked upon you and saw sin and judged it. upon that body you bore it all and you died this bread that we hold reminds us of that great great sacrifice that set us free that reconciled us you became the curse of sin who knew no sin so that we might receive the righteousness that you have put upon us on our account. We thank you for this bread and all that it means. And as we take it, we do so unified in the body of Christ, one faith and one God. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, let's all take the bread. Take a moment and just... Consider the depth of grace that this cup represents to you. What great grace. This grace that has been poured out from the cross that continues to be poured out that washes away all our sins. 
is by grace that you lifted the cup the night before you died, Lord Jesus, and you said this cup represents a new covenant. By grace, you gave us a new agreement. The old has passed away and all things become new. By grace, we have new life. By grace, we have hope. By grace, we are encouraged. By grace, we have access to the throne of God. By grace, we've been perfected. An endless grace. Unlimited. By anything I would ever do, I will never see the end of your grace. We thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. That our sins have been washed away. We praise you and we thank you for this cup. In Jesus' name, let's all take it together.
together said, Amen. Praise Jesus. Have a blessed weekend. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.